Hey folks, welcome to our coverage of the Kim Potter manslaughter trial over the April 11th, 2021 shooting death of Duante Wright in a suburb of Minneapolis, when then-police officer Potter accidentally used her Glock 17 pistol in place of her intended taser. Today was the second day of the trial proper, and remarkably enough, the state decided to spend nearly the entirety of the day focused not on the circumstances of Kim Potter's unintentional shooting of Duante Wright, but rather on the car accident that resulted from Wright's violent and high-speed flight from the traffic stop where he just violently fought lawful arrest. For context, immediately after Wright was unintentionally shot by Potter, he fled the scene of the traffic stop in his Buick at speed. He didn't make it far, however, as he sped over a median divider between opposing lanes of traffic and slammed head-on into a vehicle containing an 80s-years-old married couple, all within about a block of the traffic stop. It should go without saying that nothing about the later car crash could have anything to do with the question of whether Potter's earlier unintentional shooting of Wright was reckless in the legal sense of that term and grounds for a manslaughter conviction. Before I jump into things, I do want to briefly mention an exceptional opportunity for your consideration. Perhaps once every 12 or 18 months, we do one of our full-day Law of Self-Defense advanced classes. This is a full-day class. It's the equivalent of a law school seminar on self-defense law, applicable to all 50 states and taught in my usual plain English style without any confusing legalese. This class is taught live by me, streamed to you at your computer using Zoom, and there's plenty of opportunity for live Q&A with me during the class. Because we allow for live Q&A, however, we have to sharply limit the number of seats available. So on the rare occasions when we do one of our Law of Self-Defense Advanced classes, they invariably fill up almost immediately after we announce the date. And we've announced the date for this next one. It's taking place on Saturday, January 8th, 2022. If you've ever wanted a true mastery of the Law of Self-Defense, here's the best really among the only opportunities to grab that expertise with both hands. Again, seats are already going fast, so if you're at all interested, I urge you to grab your slot today. Okay, now back to today's trial proceedings. Of the nine witnesses the state called today to testify, only the first, Elena Albrecht Payton, Wright's purported girlfriend and the passenger in the car with him, had any first-hand knowledge of the events of the traffic stop where Wright was shot. She was also, of course, present at the car crash as well. I mean, she was in the car with Wright, uh, and she suffered not inconsiderable injuries in that car crash. Now, simply listing the other eight of today's witnesses and their role at the scene tells the story of the state's near total focus on the crash stop at which defendant Potter had no role whatever than at the traffic stop at which Potter had unintentionally shot Wright. Witness number two was Patricia Lundgren. She was the elderly driver of the car struck by Wright with her husband as a passenger. Witness number three, Denise Lundgren-Wells, is the daughter of that elderly couple who is neither at traffic nor crash stop. Witness number four, Carrie Blansky, simply lived in the home in front of which the crash occurred. Witness number five, Officer Alan Salvosa, at least he was in a squad car immediately behind Lundgren when her vehicle was struck by Wright's car. So he has some personal knowledge. He saw Wright flee the scene of the traffic stop. Witness number six, Officer Daniel Irish arrived at the crash scene after the fact. 
Witness number seven, Officer Jeff Summers, arrived at the crash scene after the fact. Witness number eight, paramedic Michael Morlock, arrived at the crash scene after the fact. Witness number nine, paramedic Dustin Johnson, arrived at the crash scene after the fact. Not only did virtually none of these witnesses have any personal knowledge of the events surrounding Potter's unintentional shooting of Wright, but the manner in which their testimony was offered was offensively cumulative, particularly with respect to the police officers. Such offering of cumulative evidence is a trick I've seen prosecutors use in many cases, including the same prosecutors in the same courtroom in the trial of Derek Chauvin. The nature of the trick is to take a single piece of evidence and use slate of hand to make it appear to be many pieces of evidence. This way, the sheer quantity of evidence on that issue appears larger than is actually the case. It's a trick that tends to be used when the prosecutor doesn't actually have the evidence he needs for conviction on the legal merits. In the Derek Chauvin case, for example, the same prosecutors here, Assistant DA Matthew Frank and Assistant DA Aaron Eldridge, had virtually every bystander observing Floyd's arrest from the sidewalk come into court to testify, even though they were all standing beside each other and saw effectively the same thing. But instead of the jury hearing the bystander narrative once, they got to hear effectively the same narrative again and again and again and again and again. We saw Assistant DA Binger and Krauss do much the same in the Rittenhouse trial. They took a single piece of evidence, the drone video, and turned it into many pieces of evidence. First, they had the raw video itself, which of course they presented to the defense in low-resolution form. Then Binger and Krauss created an enhanced version of that same video. Then they created a slow-motion version of that same video. Then they created a zoomed-in version of that same video. Then they prepared individual photos of screen captures from that same video. Then they prepared enhanced individual photos of those screen captures. And just like that, one piece of evidence, the drone video, was made to appear as it were a plethora of evidence. In this trial of Kimberly Potter, Assistant DA Frank and Eldridge, assisted substantially today by new-to-the-camera Assistant DA Jason Larson, used a similar trick around evidence of the car crash. They'd bring a police officer witness to the stand and have him testify verbally about his personal knowledge of the crash, which is fine. Then they'd show the video from his body camera and again have him repeat the same testimony this time by effectively narrating his body camera footage. Then they'd have individual photo screen captures pulled from that same body camera video and have the officer testify with respect to those. But of course, the officer doesn't just have his body camera. There's also the dash camera in the car. So now the jury is shown composite versions of the same video showing various combinations of body and dash camera together. But wait, there's more. Witness Blansky, who simply lived in the house in front of which Wright ultimately crashed, had a security camera on our home that captured an extremely obscured video of the crash. Let's produce some composite videos that combine her video along with the body camera and dash camera video from the police. And we're far from done, even so, because there were perhaps 10 to 15 officers on the scene, every one of which had their own body camera and dash camera, all of which captured an essentially identical version of the aftermath of the car crash. So let's show all that footage as well, both individually and in various composite forms. 
The state's essential strategy here appeared to me to be simply to show the jury Duante's Wright's body being pulled from the car again and again and again and again and again until the jury feels compelled to convict defendant Potter of something. Naturally, the defense objected strenuously throughout the day to this cumulative evidence, leading to numerous lengthy sidebars. Uh, Those are off-camera, of course, so I was not able to observe what arguments were made by the defense and the state. Each time, however, Judge Chu would return and announce that the defense objection was sustained in part and overruled in part, which suggests to me that Chu was giving the state guidance to throttle back on the cumulative evidence without unduly impairing their ability to present the jury with their theory of the case. Shortly after each such sidebar, however, the state would again be pushing hard on the boundaries of cumulative evidence. The defense would again object and there would be another sidebar on the matter. At one point, right after one such sidebar, Assistant DA Eldridge once again sought to introduce photographs that were clearly cumulative of already presented video evidence. The defense objected. Judge Chu noted that the photos appeared to violate her just-made ruling restricting cumulative evidence, and Eldridge's counter-argument was to claim that, well, I thought that ruling applied only to cumulative video evidence, not to cumulative photographic evidence. It's ridiculous on its face. Indeed, so cumulative was the testimony from the state's witnesses, especially later in the day, the police officers, that the defense didn't even bother to subject the last three state's witnesses to cross-examination. Finally, after the last witness of the day was done and the jury dismissed for the day, defense counsel Paul Eng formally placed his objections to this cumulative evidence on the record, noting that almost none of it was relevant to any of the elements of the crimes charged, and then, therefore, it was purely prejudicial. Indeed, the state had just subjected their client to a full day of almost purely irrelevant and prejudicial testimony. On those grounds, he formally requested that Judge Chu grant a mistrial. The state's response, made by Assistant DA Frank, was ridiculous, but probably enough of a fig leaf of an excuse to suggest an absence of malice and preclude Judge Chu from seriously considering the mistrial request. Frank reminded the court that they had filed notice to seek a longer-than-usual sentence for Potter, should she be convicted, because of various Blakely factors. Now, these are factors such as uh, that the underlying crime was committed by a police officer in uniform, or was committed in front of child witnesses, or endangered an excessive number of people, and so forth. Some of these factors obviously would apply in this case upon a conviction, if only because Potter shot right while on duty as a police officer in uniform. In fact, you may recall that Derek Chauvin was subject to a similar Blakely sentencing enhancement following his conviction. The key, however, is that the question of a Blakely sentencing enhancement is a distinct legal finding from a question of guilt. Sentencing is obviously relevant only if guilt is first found. So Blakely is only relevant if guilt is first found. Indeed, while it is the jury that first determines guilt, it is the judge, in this case, who will determine whether the state has demonstrated that Blakely factors apply after guilt has been determined. In response to the defense request for a mistrial based upon a full day of irrelevant and prejudicial testimony, Frank responded that all that evidence was relevant, not to the criminal charges, itself, but to these Blakely factors. It's a deceptive argument, even if technically true, because it is the judge, not the jury, who makes a Blakely finding. Evidence in support of Blakely factors is properly made only to the judge, not to the jury. 
Indeed, arguing Blakely evidence to the jury obviously has a high risk of confusing the jury into thinking that perhaps the Blakely evidence is relevant to their specific job of guilt on the criminal charge. Indeed, arguing Blakely evidence to the jury, especially in large and cumulative fashion, obviously has a high risk of confusing the jury into thinking that perhaps the Blakely evidence, all they heard today, is relevant to their specific job of determining guilt on the criminal charge. Indeed, I expect that's precisely what the state is hoping for. Also, nothing like a full day's worth of dedicated testimony is required to establish Blakely factors, especially given that there's always, necessarily, already been sufficient evidence to presumably support a finding of guilt. In the Derek Chauvin trial, for example, the Blakely evidence was largely mentioned only in passing in front of the jury, and then the actual Blakely legal argument was made to the judge in the form of a written motion to the court, not in the form of argument before the jury. That is the appropriate process, not what the state did here today. Ultimately, Judge Chu denied the defense motion for a mistrial on these grounds, reminded everyone that it was the court, her, and not the jury who would determine Blakely factors, and then sent everybody home for the day. Because the testimony today was largely irrelevant to the actual criminal charges, I don't really have much analysis to offer on it in detail. I do, of course, include the segmented videos of each witness's testimony in the text version of today's content. So with that said, uh, I'll just remind all of you to be sure to join us again at Legal Insurrection tomorrow morning for day three of our live coverage, including real-time commenting and streaming of the trial proceedings. And then, of course, again, at the end of tomorrow for our analysis of the day's events. Uh, Incidentally, Judge Chu has decided to start court an hour later than usual tomorrow. So proceedings are expected to kick off at 10 a.m. Central Time rather than the usual 9 a.m. All right, folks, until tomorrow morning, remember, if you carry a gun, so you're hard to kill. That's why I carry a gun, so I'm hard to kill. My family is hard to kill then you owe it to yourself and your family to also know the law so you're hard to convict. Until tomorrow, I remain Attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe.